invite you to pray with me. Father, we do now lift our eyes from our fragile lives, and we look to you. And we are weak, and we need help, and our only hope is that you are God who saves, and who has mercy, and shows grace. And that's what we need every day. And in these moments now, as we come to your word, God, we would see more of Christ. I pray that we would love Christ more as a result of spending time in your word. I pray that you would be gracious to us, your needy people, during this time. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I have been reading this book uh, called D-Day Through the Eyes of Germans. It's a fascinating read, as you can imagine. It's a difficult read, but it's a fascinating read to be sure. Uh, the book consists of several interviews with different uh, German soldiers of different ranks throughout uh, the German army that were stationed in Normandy, France in June of 1944. If you're unfamiliar, D-Day was the, uh, the, the large invasion, the largest seaborne invasion in history where the Allied forces uh, broke into Germans, uh, to Hitler's uh, Europe and created a Western Front from which they would then push the Germans back to Berlin. It's a fascinating uh, read to, to read about the German preparations for this battle. Of course, most of our history comes from the Allied perspective, uh, which is good, which is right, no problem there, but it's fascinating to read from the other side. They knew, to a man in this book, they knew there was an attack coming. They knew at some point that summer, 1944, the Allies were going to attack. They didn't know exactly where, exactly when, but they knew that it was coming. And so they prepared their defenses, the so-called Atlantic Wall. And then on the night of June 5th, 1944, when it was evident that there was a significant attack in progress, they could hear uh, hundreds and hundreds of planes flying over their heads. Uh, bombings were increased. There were reports of paratroopers dropped behind enemy lines. Uh, they knew an attack of some kind was going down. And so they made appropriate preparations for that. They suspected at that point there was going to be an attack on those beaches in the morning. And so soldiers who would normally be resting during that time, they stayed awake. They stayed on guard. They stayed alert. They joined uh, the battle lines to be prepared to make their defense. So knowledge of what was coming, that is a battle, determined their actions in that moment. So they knew an invasion was coming eventually, so they built these fortresses, these defenses, and then the night before the invasion, they knew it was imminent, and so they got ready. They manned their stations, they stayed awake, and they stayed ready. Now, obviously, that defense failed, which, as I said, was a good thing, uh, but my point is that here is just that the knowledge of what was coming, this attack, affected their actions. And this is true of any soldier. If they know something's coming, they're going to get prepared for that battle. And it's true for Christians. It's true of us. It's true in anything. If we know something's coming on the horizon, we will typically prepare for that. And as Christians, we have knowledge of what is coming in the end that determines and affects our actions now in the present, in this life. 
And so as we talked about last week, uh, the return of Christ, or end times, eschatology, the study of end times, it's not something that is to be a, a mere intellectual pursuit or something to just speculate about, but it's meant to drive us to order ourselves to live certain ways in a certain way now, here and now. And so last week, as we were finishing up chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, we saw how the knowledge of Christ's return and, and the fact that it's going to bring a resurrection for those who believe in Christ, we saw that that is meant to help us, among other things, it helps us mourn the loss of fellow Christians, fellow believers who, who die in this life. We don't mourn without hope. We mourn in hope of the future resurrection in Christ's return. Well, this week, we're still talking about the return of Christ. Paul's still talking about that, but he shifts focus a little bit. And his main concern is that believers will keep awake and be sober, to be alert, to be ready, to be prepared, to be living in light of Christ's return. And this concern is explicit in verse 6 of chapter 5, which these verses were read for us at the start of the service. Uh, in verse 6, if you'll read that with me, 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, right in the middle of this section, he says, So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. So notice in verse 6, it begins with the words, So then. So then. So Paul's drawing an inference from what he has just written previously. That is, he's making a point from the first four verses of the chapter. He's now saying, Therefore, so then... Stay awake and be sober. In light of Christ's coming, stay awake and be sober. So verse, the first four verses provide reasons for this. And then notice in verse 7, it begins with the word for. For. So again, Paul's about to give more reasons why it is they should stay awake and be sober. Why it is that that's appropriate for believers. So what we have then is... Um, Verse 6, at the focus of what Paul's saying, at the, the center of it, that is stay awake, be alert. And then we have reasons for that before it and reasons for that after it. So it's kind of like a sandwich. Verse 6 is kind of that main thing in the middle that he wants us to know, stay alert. And that's what he wants us to get from this. And um, then he gives reasons for why that is before and after verse 6. So in terms of a takeaway, verse 6 is what Paul wants for us. And so we're looking today, as we've been talking about this series of what a faithful church is, as we've gone through this book of 1 Thessalonians, we're looking at how a faithful church is awake and sober. And we'll explain that, and we'll get into the reasons why that is, why that should be the case. But first, what does it mean to be awake and sober, as he says, calls us to that? Well, I think as, as we'll see, we'll see this as we go throughout the sermon, but it simply means living the Christian life, guarding against sin and temptation, walking in righteousness, pursuing holiness, uh, practicing you know, faith, remaining in faith, hope and love, as we'll see, being diligent in prayer and so on. These, this is what it means to be alert, to be awake, to be sober-minded. These are things that don't just happen for Christians. Uh, they're not just, just simply automatic. We're not told to just sit on the couch and we'll just be granted um, holiness. We don't just slide into faithfulness. We're called to diligence, 
to alertness, to readiness, to vigilance, to sober-mindedness, clear thinking. We are in battle. We're in a battle, which means we're to engage in this battle, in this fight for holiness. So one, one commentator says, to be awake and sober describes the moral state of having all systems on and functioning. And so we're going to look at three reasons, three reasons to keep alert. So the first, we'll just, I'll just give you these quick and then we'll, we'll go through them. So three reasons to keep alert, to keep awake, sober. First of all, the day of the Lord will come suddenly. Secondly, keeping alert is the appropriate behavior for believers, or you might say it's what Christians do. And the third thing is that the day of the Lord is your salvation. For believers, it is your salvation. So the first thing, keep alert because, number one, the day of the Lord will come suddenly. So let's read the first four verses. Paul says, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While some are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. So the words that start verse 1 there, now concerning, this is a common way, uh, a common uh, phrase Paul uses when he begins to address an issue that they have written him about or have approached him about. And so he's, it's a bit of a transition from the end of chapter 4. We saw this back in 4.9, and it's in 1 Corinthians several places Paul uses this phrase. Um, and the particular issue here that they've written to him about and are asking him about is the times and seasons, he says. That is specifically, namely, when, when it is that Christ will return. The timing of it. And interestingly, Paul tells them, he says, that they have no need to have anything written to them about this because they are fully aware that the Lord, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So he doesn't need to say much more about this, he says. They know what they, they already have been taught what, what it is they really need to know. That's what he's saying to them. So we know that when Paul was in Thessalonica, before he had to flee there because of persecution, he, he did some teaching on Christ's return. Again, we talked about that last week a bit. This is not an incidental or sort of secondary uh, part of the Christian faith. No, Christ rose and he's coming back. And so Paul did do some teaching on that and evidently already taught them that the day of the Lord would come like a thief. So they're not ignorant about it. They know this is going to happen, that Christ is returning, and that it's going to be sudden. I think that's what this idea, this imagery of a thief in the night is, is about, the suddenness. And for unbelievers in particular, that image brings up a surprise. A thief typically comes when you're not expecting it, when you're not looking for them. And so to many, Christ's return is going to be complete and utter surprise. Jesus also uses this imagery of a thief to describe his return in Matthew 24, in verse 43. And if you recall last week, I said Matthew 24 and 25, I think, is the background of, 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 uh, of what Paul is talking about here in 1 Thessalonians 5, that he's... he's 
uh, basically explaining and interpreting and, and trying to help them understand Jesus' teachings on his return. So he's drawing on Christ's words. And Jesus himself uses that imagery of a thief, that he'd come back like a thief. And so this suddenness for unbelievers is going to be unexpected. It's going to be a surprise. Verse 3 describes this. He says, while people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So peace and security. These were celebrated realities in the first century uh, Roman Empire. Caesar Augustus had brought in the Pax Romana, uh, this extended period of, of relative peace in the Roman Empire. It was a long period. And so peace and security was a celebrated reality. And it was the, really the pride of the Roman Empire. It brought peace to the world. It's peace and security, it means safety. It means prosperity for people. So what Paul's saying is while people are feeling secure, they're feeling confident, they're feeling good, then the Lord will return and bring with him sudden destruction. This is similar to what Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 37. Uh, Jesus compares his return to uh, when the flood hit in Noah's day. And here's what he says there. Jesus says in, in, in Matthew 24, 37, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, peace security, normal life, until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. And so Christ's return will be sudden. It will be unexpected for believers, just as the flood was in the days of Noah. And both in Matthew 24 and in our passage, we're told that when that day arrives, there's going to be judgment. Christ's return, he says here, will bring sudden destruction upon unbelievers. And it's sudden like a woman who suddenly goes into labor. And Paul adds here at the end of verse four, first, sorry, end of verse three, that they will not escape. That is, they will not escape this judgment. As the people of the earth were judged for their wickedness in the days of Noah, so too the people of the earth will be judged by holy God at the end. The pictures of Jesus that you see around, generally around, uh, perhaps a mental picture, um, you often see the, t the tender side of Jesus. Um, often he, he's even a little bit uh, feminine in some of the portrayals. And, uh, and, and even just in a lot of people's conception, conception of Jesus, uh, he is, he's gentle and soft and he's holding lambs. And, um, and certainly there's a side of Jesus that is gentle, right? He was a lamb to the slaughter. He did not fight back when the uh, Jews uh, tried him and, and put handed him over to Pilate who, who put him on the cross. He, he went willingly to the cross as a, a lamb to the slaughter. But he is not weak. And when he returns, it will be for judgment. 
It will be to judge those who persist in sinfulness. The, the reality is our sin is offensive to the God who is majestic in holiness, who wraps himself in light as with a garment, Psalm 104 says. Our sins before this God are an abomination. And so, God being just, there must be judgment for sin, judgment for sinners. And yet, and yet, God in his kindness has made a way for sinners to escape this judgment. And in his wonderful kindness, he calls all people everywhere to repent of their sins and to place their faith in the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ to find the forgiveness of your sins. Do not be caught off guard by the end. Don't spend your days laboring for peace and security. This is obviously a big deal in our world today as, as it was in the Roman Empire, uh, as it's always been. If we can find peace and security, all will be well with us. But there is coming a day when we will stand before the Lord. There is coming a day when Jesus himself will return and with him will come judgment. Peace and security will, get, will be nothing at that point. But there will be sudden, sudden destruction. Don't labor for that peace and security. Turn to God. Repent. Turn from your sin. Be saved. Be forgiven. Renounce your efforts to please God and appease Him with your works. Call out to Him for mercy and grace. It's your only hope. It's our only hope. So for unbelievers, the day of the Lord will be a surprise, like a thief coming at night. But for unbelievers, notice, though, in verse 4, Paul says, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. So for Christians, we know the Lord is coming back. In Matthew 24, when Jesus uses this analogy of a thief, he says that if the master of the house knew when a thief, that a thief was coming, he would have stayed awake. Right? And that's exactly what Paul's telling us to do in verse 6, to stay awake. Why? Because we know Jesus is coming. And so for, for believers, the return of Christ, it will be sudden. We don't know the day or the hour. It's going to be sudden, but it's not going to be surprising. We know the day is going to come. We know the day is coming. And so we're not to be caught off guard by it. That's what, what Paul is, is wanting for us. The scriptures speak of Christ's return as something that is sudden and where the timing is unknown. We don't know the day or the hour. And yet, the scriptures also speak of signs that are to be fulfilled first. And so, my understanding of these signs, the signs of the times, we, we see these signs in, in Matthew 24. He sp speaks of earthquakes, wars, apostasy, tribulation, etc. My understanding is that these are, are things that are continually present in this age, but will get worse and even come to a climax before the end, before Christ returns. And yet, this doesn't mean that we can nail down the exact time or the hour. 
And I think Matthew 24, again, confirms this. Uh, Verse 32 and following, after talking about the signs of the times, the signs of the end, Jesus says, From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and put out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, all these signs, you know that he is near, Jesus is near, at the very gates. So there's things that, uh, these signs that alert us that the end is near, but he then goes right on, a couple verses later, and adds, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows. So Christ's return is, is sudden, it's, but it's not a complete and utter surprise for believers, for Christians. And that's what Paul says here in verse 4. We're not to be surprised. And so, the day approaches when Christ will return, and we are to be alert and ready. We're to remain awake. That is, to be anticipating Christ's return, to be ordering our lives now uh, in light of that. Don't be surprised when it comes. In fact, those who are surprised by it, the Bible says, are the people that will be destroyed. The ones who are not living in light of that day. So don't put off spiritual matters. Don't put off Christ as though that uh, the return is delayed, I have time. You, we don't know that. He could return at any moment. Death could strike at any moment. Don't, don't delay putting off, don't put off spiritual matters. What is your soul worth to you? In Jesus' parable of the uh, ten virgins in Matthew 25, which again is in the middle of him teaching about his return, uh, five of the, the virgins brought enough oil in their lamps to await the bridegroom. They're ready, they're prepared. Uh, but five of them did not bring enough oil, didn't prepare, and instead it says they, they became drowsy. Again, they're sleeping, not being awake. And they miss out when the Lord returns. And so as we will see, Christians are those who live in anticipation of the Lord's return. Now, I just want to say one thing about this. Being alert and being ready and prepared and living in light of that day doesn't mean we suddenly become really weird. It doesn't mean we just get rid of everything and we live in the wilderness and just sit there because he's going to come at any moment. That's not, people have, we laugh, but people have done that in the past, expecting at any moment Christ's coming, so I'm going to put off all this and I'm just going to go uh, wait in some weird way somewhere. As we saw even a couple weeks ago, um, we are called to faithfulness in the ordinary aspects of life, going to work, in motherhood, in being a dad, very ordinary things that are not super spectacular. We're called to faithfulness in those things, but we're called to do those things in light of Christ's return. We need to be faithful in those things. Why? Because Christ is returning. And so it means striving, waiting, being alert, being ready, means striving to do all we do, to the glory of God, whether we eat or drink or whatever it is we are doing. Faithfulness at work, we work and we do it well. We do it as unto the Lord because we know the Lord is returning. So be alert, the day of the Lord will come suddenly. The second thing, be alert because keeping alert is the appropriate behavior for Christians. It's what Christians do, it's what we do. 
So let's read this again, uh, four to eight, uh, verses four to eight. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. In these verses uh, here, as well as uh, in many places throughout the scriptures, um, darkness is used as an analogy for the dominion of sin that characterizes the life of the unconverted. It's, it's used to describe the dominion of unbelievers, darkness. And daytime, or light, on the other hand, is used to describe the realm in which Christians live, in which believers live. And so Christians are children of the light, Paul says here, children of the day. That's who we are. Our identity has been changed. We've come out of darkness. We are now in light. And we're called to live as children of light, putting away deeds of darkness. And throughout the New Testament, this is how salvation is described, is this transfer from darkness to light. And so I want to read uh, some verses that, that show this, that, that depict the world of sin as one of darkness, the world of a believer is one of light, as of the day. And so I'll just read through these quickly. John 3.19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So again, darkness, the realm of unbelievers, Jesus, believers depicted as light. Romans 13.12, Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. 2 Corinthians 6.14 Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Ephesians 5, 11, 14. Won't read all of it, but a few parts of that. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Awake, O sleeper, Arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Colossians 1.13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Acts 26.18, Jesus, uh, this is Jesus speaking to Paul, commissioning him to the Gentiles. We're talking about Paul being commissioned to the Gentiles. He says, it'll be to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me, in Christ. And then finally, 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies who, of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The sinful world 
is in a permanent state of nighttime, of darkness, moral darkness, sleeping, that is not ready, morally unprepared and unconcerned. Drunkenness, that is, uh, he talks about drunkenness here, frivolity, uncontrolled behavior. Uh, Christians, though, we're told, are transferred out of this and into the light, given new identity as children of the day. We are those who have put our faith in Christ, who've put on, Paul talks about here, uh, faith, love, and hope in verse 8. And we're told, be sober because you have done this, because you have put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Be sober, be awake. And so we are called as Christians to, uh, to live in a manner that is consistent with who we now are, with what our identity now is in Christ. Again, the, the verse I read from Ephesians 5, verse 8, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. That's what Paul is saying here in 1 Thessalonians 5. The pursuit of holiness for Christians is tied to who we are in Christ, to our identity in Christ. We do not have to, in fact, we cannot clean up our act before we come to Christ. We're not to make ourselves right and then come to Christ, clean up our sins, and then we will come to Christ. That's not how it works. We come to Him with nothing but our filthiness and our sin, and we ask for grace and mercy. And when a person is is saved, is converted, given a new heart, they're made new. They are given a new heart. They are a new creation. They're given new desires, and now they belong to the day. And so we're to live now in accordance with who we've become, that is, God's children. So we don't, as Christians, pursue obedience to make ourselves right with God, but because we have been made right with God, through faith, that by his grace, through faith, we've been transferred out of darkness into light, and now we pursue holiness because we have been shown this kindness and this great grace and love and mercy. And so we have put on faith, love, and hope, therefore we are to remain sober-minded and ready for battle. Be alert, Be ready. It's what Christians do. This is who we are as children of the day. Christians are those who live in the light. Romans 6.11 says it this way. It's the same concept but different language. Paul says, So you also, talking about those who've been saved by grace through faith, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's the reality of what has happened, and we're to realize that and live out of that identity. You are truly, as a believer, dead to sin and alive to Christ, and so we are to live out of that new nature. And so await the coming of Christ by living in the light, by clinging to your faith in Christ, to the hope of your salvation, by rejoicing in God's great love for you and seeking to love others around you. Guard against the deeds of darkness, 
seeking to put them to death and put on that which is holy and pleasing and good and right. Pleasing to God, that is. This is appropriate for Christians. In fact, this is the Christian life. It's what we do because of who we now are. And this is how we then await the return of Christ. So keeping alert is the appropriate behavior for believers. And then finally, stay alert because the day of the Lord is your salvation. The day of the Lord is your salvation if you are a believer. Let's read verses 9 to 11. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. The return of Christ or the end times can be a terrifying thought, can be a scary thought. The judgment of holy God is rightly a scary thing, a scary consideration. But Paul ends this section with an encouraging word for believers. And he returns to God's election. He says, For God has not destined us for wrath. Back in chapter 1, verse 4, we saw that Paul expressed his confidence that God had indeed chosen, had, had indeed elected these people because they had borne much fruit. We saw that back in chapter 1, verse 4 and the following verses. And here he reminds them that God's plan for them is not that they would face wrath, but that they would be saved through Jesus, he says, who died for us. So Christ's death is for, or it's on behalf of, his people. He substitutes in for his people and takes their sins and pays their penalty on the cross. And his people are then given his perfect righteousness. And it is in this, then, that we are to take great hope and comfort and to have confidence in this when we think of the last day. It says the purpose of Jesus died for our sins so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. So as we've been looking at being asleep versus being awake in chapter 5, He's talking about whether we are in the domain of darkness or whether we are in uh, the domain of, of light, if we are unbelievers and in darkness, or whether we are believers and children of the day. Um, but here, he uses a sleep and awake in a different sense, in the sense he used in chapter 4. So he reverts back to a previous usage of awake and asleep, and here he is talking again about being alive or being dead. So if you'll recall, uh, back at the end of chapter 4, where Paul discusses how things will play out at the return of Christ for believers. And he talks about two types of believers, those who are the dead in Christ and those who are alive at his coming. And he uses, uh, in, in those verses, he talks about the dead in Christ being those asleep in Christ and those who are alive are those who are awake in Christ. And that's what he's talking about here. So he's reverting back and he's saying that uh, whether... A Christian is alive when Christ returns, or whether they have died, whether they are awake or asleep, whether they're alive or have died, when Christ comes, we will live with him. That's why Jesus died. Verse 10 again, who died for us that whether we are awake or asleep, dead or alive, we might live with 
him. So again, he's reassuring him that the de- them that the dead in Christ will rise first. We saw this last week. That those who are alive at Christ's coming will be caught up with them in the air and will be given glorified bodies, which we see in 1 Corinthians 15. So whatever our condition when Christ returns, if we're alive or if we've died in Christ, we will live with Christ forever. Back in 4.9, I mean, chapter 4, verse 17, that's what Jesus, uh, Paul says, and so we will always be with the Lord. That's what he's talking about again. We will live with him. And then Paul concludes in verse 11 here of chapter 5 to encourage one another with these words. And again, we see Paul's pastoral concern for these people. Talking about Christ's return is meant for our encouragement to strengthen us today. It's that, that's its primary purpose right now, and, and it's what, why Paul is writing this, to help them. He's, a, he's got a pastoral heart here. I remember a time when I was young. I don't know how old I was, old enough to know better. Um, but my brother and I were home alone, and... Uh, we started wrestling, and that's what boys do. And we knew we were not supposed to wrestle in the living room, and yet we did. And sure enough, um, I was the younger one, so I was the one thrown down. And I crashed into a table, and we broke something that was special to my mom, that was precious to my mom, and we broke it. And instantly, we just, I mean, it, it, was an, it was a horrible feeling. And we were supposed to be in bed by the time my mom and dad arrived home, but we stayed awake and uh, we waited for them to arrive so we could give them the news of what we'd done. And it was, a, it was an awful wait. I don't know. It was a couple hours. It felt like a long time, though. And uh, I remember distinctly, this stands out in my mind, feeling dread and, um, and, and just anxiety about when they would come through that door, having to confess that we did what they've explicitly said not to do hundreds of times. And it had a bad consequence. So I I recall this dread of their coming back. But as Christians, we are not to await the Lord's return in dread or anxiety. Paul is assuring us here that for those who've repented and placed their faith in Jesus Christ, that day will be a day of salvation, a day of deliverance, a day of joy, a wonderful day, a good day, a great day, the completion of our salvation. And if we question if this is his desire and and motive for us, if this will really come to pass, we have only to look at Jesus who died on the cross to save his people, and as Paul says here, to bring us to him, to live with him, to be with him forever. His blood was not spilled in vain. Jesus, back in chapter 1, verse 10, Paul says, Jesus is the one who saves us from the wrath to come. We are called to be alert, to be sober-minded, because the Lord's return will bring about the completion of our salvation. This is the great purpose of Christ's death and resurrection, to forgive us and to bring you, if you believe, to himself. 
So be encouraged by this in the present. And as you consider what you do with your time and in your days, consider this future reality. Consider it as you face temptation even. Do battle knowing Christ has died to bring you to himself and that day is coming and and prepare for that day. Live in light of that day. We are not to be anxious about this. So don't be anxious about it. Make your only hope that Jesus died to save sinners. The opening question to the Heidelberg Catechism, which I think is uh, 1563, written then, it asks, so this is a catechism, uh, it's for Christians to learn the answer to these questions by memory, Uh, children would do this, and uh, new believers would do this, you learn the answer to this question, this is the first question, so this is out of the gate, first thing you're learning in the the church, uh, Reformed churches of old. The question is, what is your only comfort in life and death? And certainly it applies to our only comfort when Christ returns. What is your only comfort in life and death? Here's the answer. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my Heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Sometimes we struggle with the question, are we saved? What will that day hold when Christ returns? But I would just ask you, what is your only hope? And if you know that only hope is Jesus Christ, just live there, camp there. It's our only hope 10 years ago. It's our only hope today, tomorrow, and until Christ returns. It's our only hope. So keep alert. The day of the Lord is your salvation. The Germans on D-Day prepared for battle, a battle that they knew was coming, and yet it wasn't enough. They lost the battle and eventually went on to lose the war, which obviously is good. But we prepare for the end with confidence. When Christ returns, we will be saved. Christ died for that purpose. He is the victorious Lord, and He will return as such. And so we await that day, alert, ready, seeking to order ourselves and our days and our lives in light of the King's return in glory. Are you ready? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what kindness that you would show grace to sinful people like us, that you would send Christ to redeem a people to be with you forever. God, we confess that our only hope, our only comfort in life and in death is that we belong to you. Through the work of Jesus Christ and as a result of your grace, I pray that every one of us here 
would be confident of your salvation, that we would root ourselves in the fact that our only hope is Jesus Christ, crucified for sinners like us. And I pray that we would live our lives in light of that day, in expectation of that day, in anticipation, looking ahead with joy at that day, that we would be alert and sober-minded, that we would desire to warn others of that day who are in the domain of darkness, that we would plead with people to turn from their sin and sin and trust in Christ. Thank you that Christ is a capable and able Savior. And we just pray that you would save many even in this town for your own name's sake. And God, again, prepare us that we would be those who are faithful, who are alert and ready living in light of Christ's return. And we ask you to do all these things in the name of Jesus for your glory and for our joy. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.